Okay, we can get underway. Um, welcome, anyone. Uh, thanks for joining. And I'm uh, Dave Hockhauser, the Chief Revenue Officer for Hub Security. Um, my company designs um, extremely secure hardware and software cybersecurity solutions, and in particular for uh, digital assets as well. Um, at the last minute, actually, our moderator uh, just came down ill. We found that out a few minutes ago. So I'm going to switch and become the moderator now for similar discussion though. So um, I think everything should be fine. Um, let me give you, um, uh, I'll introduce both, both players and I'll have them introduce themselves as well, but let me at least give you kind of a one minute overview of the purpose and what we're doing here today and why we picked this particular area to, and, and, the, and the experts to focus on. Um, one, is uh, both, um, we're having a session uh, both with Julie and Beth to discuss kind of banking, digital assets and regulations associated with it. And, and the real reason is there's a ton of activity around digital assets as everybody knows and really rapid changing changes going on constantly. Um, new regu regulations are obviously constantly changing, assets are being introduced all the time, new offerings, new players and everything. Um, so, a lot of these efforts and changes is just really due to really all the, the constant stream of assets. I mean, you hear, you hear it all the time and the new players. Some of them are legitimate. Um, some I think are a little bit more risky than others. And so two major efforts to really legitimize the cryptocurrency industry as a whole and mitigate the rest is one, the entry of banks and creation of specific banks around digital assets. And the other one is the introduction and refinement of the regulations that are going on. So in this particular session, we'll focus on setting up, um, a, literally setting up a bank focused on digital assets and the current regulatory environment um, with what I feel are two really uh, superb players um, in this market. So, and we might touch upon some unique risks as well uh, that comes around that and cybersecurity risks around the digital assets. Um, so with that, um, hopefully uh, sit back, enjoy, feel free to type in questions. We will definitely answer the questions whether during the session or uh, right after um, some of our own discussion. Um, so feel free all along as you want to uh, do that. And I think I'd like to start off with um, Julie one, you know, both if you can introduce yourself and then to maybe give also along that line kind of a brief overview of the Wyoming Deposit and Trust and Transfer Bank um, and kind of the products and services that you offer and spend a little bit of time on that. And then um, Beth can, we'll have Beth go ahead and introduce herself. Sure, great, thank you. Hi, I'm Julie Fellows and my background includes uh, being a regulator with the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. That's really how I started my career in financial services. I've had a long career in financial services and been in leadership roles, both within regulated and non-regulated entities. And uh, so I'm really excited about this new, uh, the way that financial services is evolving. I really feel that the future of finance is digital. And that's why I have uh, moved into this space and, and taken on this new exciting challenge, which is starting a new regulated entity that is involved in both fiat and digital assets. So uh, David, as you mentioned, the Wyoming Deposit and Transfer Corp. Uh, I am a co-founder and CEO, and we are a newly chartered bank in a state bank in Wyoming, and it's under a SPDI charter, that's a special purpose depository institution charter. We're only the third ever uh, entity to receive this charter. So we're really blazing a new trail in the regulated digital asset world. Uh, WDT will seam seamlessly and reliably bridge the gap between traditional banking and the rapidly evolving world of cryptocurrency and digital wealth. If you mentioned uh, the significant change that's happening and we really feel that um, a safe, robust financial entity that is regulated is an important component in bridging that gap. So we will have that safe, robust financial platform 
Uh, it's very secure. We, we enjoy the dual ledger blockchain system and uh, will be powered by best of breed technology in a single solution. Our, our clients, uh, what we provide to our clients will be uh, commercial banking and digital asset management in white glove customer care all in one place. So, you know, the last thing is that because our charter is granted in the state of Wyoming, which is the most crypto friendly state in the nation, our customers are free to invest and transact in both digital asset and fiat uh, with confidence and security, knowing that they're in a fully regulated environment. Oh, great, thanks. Thanks, appreciate that. That actually sounds pretty interesting. And personally, I'm looking forward to the assurance of working with a bank in crypto um, than some of the other players. Um, hey, Beth, I'd love it if you take a moment to kind of introduce yourself and give a little bit of background as well. Sure, David. So um, I'm Beth Haddock. Thank you for uh, inviting me to participate today. I think I would start by saying I love being a trustee and an advisor. I have my training in traditional finance, much like Julie. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, first as an executive and an attorney at insurance companies, AXA namely, then in banks, uh, namely Brown Brothers Harriman as the head of compliance and also a legal advisor, and then uh, at hedge fund Guggenheim Investments. So. My training is steeped in traditional finance and legal uh, advisory. And then more recently, I decided to become an entrepreneur and I founded my own consultancy where we really help with regulatory strategy for those entering this pretty exciting space of digital assets, blockchain, and then some in the traditional finance as well. I, um, like Julie, am affiliated, I am a trustee for a, a New York State regulated entity. So I am a trustee on uh, a subsidiary of GMO Internet. So GMO Internet is a publicly traded Japanese company. In order to get into the stablecoin space, they have a regulated entity in the state of New York. And I sit on that board. It's the only uh, yen pegged stable coin. There's also a US dollar stable coin that the subsidiary is really designed to offer into the market. I think we'll get into some of the stable coin wars. There's lots of interesting products in the space. And I guess I want to also thank Julie specifically for collaborating and reaching out. That's why we're both here today. Um, and I look forward to hearing everyone's questions. Yeah, great. Great. That is, that's pretty interesting background. Um, so let, let me start off, I'll ask kind of the first topic around kind of the, the, the needs in the industry around kind of regulations and maybe first Beth and then sure Julie can kick in. Um, I know we hear a lot of discussions, we're racing around, you know, regulations, let's get more, let's look at the regulations and refine them. But curious what you think might be a first, you know, the right steps to take in the approach, you know, there's some discussions even potentially, let's understand, uh, what the products are and what's out there and what people are doing even before we jump into it. I'm not so sure there's a clear understanding, but curious what your thoughts are on that topic and the best way to proceed here. Yeah, thanks, Dave. I think I, think I really have three points for the audience. Um, number one, I'm, I'm a chair of the National Society for Compliance Professionals, NSCP. We have a round table that focuses just on blockchain and fintech because it is very confusing and hard to figure out. So that uncertainty, as well as I'm an author of a book about how to build compliance programs so they're not bureaucratic, has me really sort of worried about this one topic. So number one, I would say the uncertainty in the market in and of itself creates risk, which as long as it's temporary, I think it's fine. And one way that I'd offer that we can together try and mitigate that risk is educate the regulators. Because if we're focused on talking about which entities should be regulated and which entities shouldn't, and what are the risks, let's say just for anti-fraud, because that seems to be the main one that we're all focused on currently. Um, I think we really miss an opportunity to pause 
and to make sure before we start making rules that we understand what the products and services are because number two, there could be unintended consequences. And what do I mean by unintended consequences? It's sort of what I alluded to about building compliance programs where compliance officers are spending a lot of time and money and effort on a program that's actually not mitigating the material or the top risks because the regulation uh, was either a misfit, it was relied too much on the traditional framework, or just a misunderstanding in light of time and a sense of urgency to go ahead and regulate. And I think the third point, um, and I'm really interested in hearing what Julie has to say, I think she and I, despite the fact that we're sort of not almost bi-coastal, but between Wyoming and New York, right, it's a, it's a really good example of you can have America is amazing, right? It's big. There's like this big capitalist energy. We are the country that really, when you think of the, the tech industry, you really want to keep the hub of this blockchain. Um, I think of it as like the next level, I think as um, Julie said, the future of finance. And the third point would be if we don't move and educate and be very careful, uh, we could inadvertently force that next hub of finance away from America into other countries that are willing to pause and to understand the products and services. And rather than prohibiting them, figuring out a smart way to regulate them. So the material risks are the ones that the compliance officers and the business are really focused on. And I think ours is a really good use case between New York and Wyoming and, and even some other states in America that, um, that, that there's a lot for us to talk about today. Yeah. Interesting. That's, that's good. It makes total, makes total sense. And I realize it's, it's frequent. Very few people understand, um, really have a good understanding of the market, I find. And especially people legislating, it is hard to stay on top of. So. Well, I think, sense. yeah, and I think your introductory comments were spot on, which is it's evolving, it's changing. <laughs> so if, yeah. if you're not focused on it, and it is incredibly vast, so a vast evolving and changing sector, it's, it's complex. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And in one sense, bumping up against an extremely conservative group who deal with handling the money money supply. Um, innovation running up against conservative is tough sometimes. Yeah, Julia, I was wondering if you have any more, more thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I, I would say I, I absolutely agree with the points that Beth made. And, and I think that education and creating thoughtful regulation, and I think that really starts with both regulators and industry understanding the products and services better understanding blockchain technology, what it can do, what it, what maybe some of its limitations are, and then looking at the broader risk profile and understanding the perspectives of different players within the industry, both those that choose to be regulated, uh, those who uh, will not uh, go through the regulatory process, but will be involved in the process in, in some shape or form, um, and, and really understanding both big and small, traditional and non, what, um, what are the voices of the industry? As, as Beth said, it's so quickly evolving and complex. It's very important for there to be a clear understanding of that before regulations are implemented, which I do think um, can have a, a very negative effect in um, stifling the industry and perhaps causing a lot of time and energy to be spent on things that, that really are not addressing the risk. So I, I think that is a way to start education, working together, a thoughtful process to understand, and, and then you know, making sure that we continue to innovate in this space. And, and I think to Beth's point about the United States leading this from a technology perspective, I, I think it's Fabulous, and I also see that there are other um, 
countries or um, blocks around the world, the EU, other, um, other financial overseers that are really being proactive and establishing a framework. And so I think that the U.S. needs to both make sure that we are doing that within the U.S., but also so that it is transferable and, and meshes on a global scale. Well, that makes, yeah, definitely makes sense. And I've seen yeah quite a bit of difference between different countries, um, which is amazing. Well, you know, and um, switching it kind of one a next topic on kind of the needs. We look at um, regulations around um, the, the digital assets and around protecting the um, the industry. In a sense, we look at anti money laundering and anti fraud measures. Uh, what about the other way? What are your thoughts on kind of protecting the investors as well? I know, you know, what's the what's tolerance of risk? What's being offered? I know sometimes you just buy a mutual fund and you get advice. Hey, this is very risky. This is moderate. This is less risky. You get some advice, but any thoughts? Should we even head in that direction, or what we should be doing on that? Um, we could reverse it this time and let Julie go first. Sure. You know, I, I think. In, um... Regulation, um, again, thoughtfully implemented is really important. So both the importance of a regulated financial institution that provides safety and soundness, but that those regulations are there for a reason to help to protect, protect the users, uh, the consumers, if you will, uh, whether they be businesses or individuals of those products. And I think that there's so... Uh, this is a complex area, and for those who are not experts in the space, uh, there is room for uh, bad players and for fraud to happen and for people to lose their funds. And so I think that by increasing the structure around that to mitigate those risks and to help provide transparency and information so that people can make wise decisions, informed decisions, uh, based on real uh, requirements. Ah, interesting, yeah, that's good. You know, by the way, as you're saying that, I was just thinking there are always people too who, who ask me, so what do you think about this crypto environment? Should I invest in it, should I not? Which is a pretty loaded question, you know. Personally, the only thing I can answer that, and without a long explanation of to teach them, is to say, look, if you don't know anything about it, you could go to Las Vegas as well and put money down. It's about the same level of risk. The education is going to be critical, but maybe there are things to regulate, you know, to help us. Yeah, um, I, yeah, Beth, I was wondering if you had any further thoughts. Oh, go ahead, Julie, if you have more on that. Yeah, yeah Beth, if you have any further thoughts on that. Sure. I, I, a couple of um, comments to some of Julie's and then just more broadly. I think it's great when you look back at the last couple of years, the OCC tried to be proactive. You've also heard uh, the new chair, uh, Gary Gensler, talking about compliance is more than just AML. Commissioner Peirce has talked about, you know, as the crypto mom, she's talked about the fact that trying to prohibit the demand and really instead focusing on informed decision-making, as Julie said, is really important and just anecdotally, uh, maybe others on the on the line are also this, but I'm basically my own version of a crypto mom where my son and all of his friends, okay? So you think about people, he's older, right? But you cannot stop the investor demand. They, you know, they may hypothetically have accounts with entities that are not permitted to do business in the US. They also may be residents of a state and have an account with an entity that's not permitted to do business in New York. Uh, hypothetically, they might have opened up an account before they should have been able to get through the KYC process. And it's been really interesting as, as someone who's in this space as a regulatory and a legal expert to sort of have these antidotes. And I think, I think it's real. I'm hopeful that everyone at this point in 2021 who's in the regulatory decision-making roles understand that it's a momentum one can really not stop. 
And to think that you're going to discourage that demand, I, I, at least from where I sit, I think we'd be better served by putting that aside and going directly for what Julie said, which is informed decision making. And from my perspective, as we work with folks, and if one is a money transmitter or a money services business, and they're with FinCEN, and they're only focused on AML and KYC, and they're not fully regulated, like the entities that Julie talked about in Wyoming or the entity I talked about in New York, you know, that's, that's a big gap. That's a big gap if you have all of this momentum and you've got all these folks who aren't going to stop from opening up accounts, right? Um, I feel like we really need to move past AML and move into um, maybe it's transparency about products. I think I mentioned in my intro the stablecoin wars. I think that's awesome. Now there's a discussion before there is a crisis as to whether or not there's enough rigor behind stable coins like like the circle stable coin as compared to julie's entity and like there was even press we're talking about yeah we decided we are going to apply for a federal banking charter and i thought great this is like it's a good story it's an important one for people who are jumping in and thinking about what framework they want but I, I, I'm really glad you asked the question because I feel like we're at a point where um, hopefully many are at the point where they realize you really can't stop the momentum. And, and we already have investors who, there was this great New Yorker article, I don't know if others read it, where uh, what people do is they just go on Coinbase or whatever platform they're on and start to buy everything and they have no idea. They might not even realize when they buy a stable coin that it's actually a stable coin. And they might not buy a coin that um, is a fraudulent coin versus one that um, there's actually a lot behind there and a lot of transparency. And in some respects, Julie probably saw this as her time as a regulator. I know I saw it in the securities industry where it's not that unlike micro cap securities or penny stocks. Is you know, we've seen this before, which is we, you know, everyone loves a good success story. So as long as at least from where I sit in my position, if the regulation is focused on putting the right guardrails instead of stopping the momentum, I'm really optimistic about the next year or so. Yeah, I do think it is unstoppable. Uh, but yeah, definitely a lot of things to simplify, both to simplify it even technically, as well as regulatory. Um, it's not an easy thing for somebody to go set up and, and figure out how to do who doesn't understand what's going on. Um, yeah, it's true. Like I, the same people I was talking about, I'm always like, don't leave it. They have a vault, right? And this is probably to Julie's point about if you have a full banking license, it's different than if you don't. But saying don't leave your coins in your wallet, make sure it goes to the vault because when you look at all these security breaches, they're, they're, they're real, right? The real risk. Yes. And I think that actually, I mean, just as I think, brings up a, a lack of almost maturity in people's knowledge and the industry and some of those things as well. You know, it, I mean, if you had a million dollars in cash, you wouldn't necessarily put it in your wallet at home or just, you know, put it in a drawer somewhere. You'd, you'd go to a bank and deposit it. None of that. You wouldn't expect the bank to just put it in a teledrawer or just make a note on a local laptop somewhere with a Norton firewall, you'd expect it to be pretty well secured. And that kind of rigor um, in some places exists, but in a lot, I think it's a matter of maturity and people understanding what they're, what they're doing. And it leads to a lot of the problems we see as well. Yeah, and it's interesting as we watch, if you're, if you're getting into the business and you look at the legal agreements, that you see between perhaps your service providers and you're not careful, you could sign an agreement that shows that lack of maturity because there aren't any reps or warranties about the security or about how one is gonna handle a breach, um, which are important concepts. 
And, and that's why I, I think that the points that you're making are so important because I think there is a lack of sophistication on the part of many who are so excited to get into this industry and, and get involved. Uh, some of them are, 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 are very sophisticated. So I'm not saying that, that it's across the board, but I think there is um, just enough um, risk there for people um, just in moving, you know, purchasing, moving the asset, safe on and off ramp, uh, being able to hold that in a safe um, custody. And, and really those that are fiduciaries and responsible for other people's money really need to have the safety and security of, I feel, a regulated institution and specifically qualified custody that meets the SEC requirements. And, and I think that as more and more uh, professionals um, and, and institutions become involved in the investment, they will um, certainly move to the qualified custody and, and the benefits of the, the stability uh, provided by some of a, a more um, structured regulatory environment can provide. Yeah, that which, um, which kind of leads one sense into another question. Um, overall is, you know, we see a lot of differences too in the regulations, even state to state, asset to asset. Um, I know personally, I bought an asset um, and all of a sudden they blocked it three weeks later in my wallet because you're not permitted in New York to buy Tezos coins. So it took three weeks, they let me buy it, it took three weeks to for them to then they shut down my wallet and then it took another three weeks to figure out how to get extracted in order so I don't lose it altogether. And that confusion across, you know, are, are those regulations necessary to have, a, you know, difference across uh, different states, different countries, different industries, or any thoughts on how to kind of simplify or do something about this uh, really hodgepodge of different regulations? Um, yeah. I can start in the, I know Beth has some ideas on this too, but I, I would say that I think there, as we talked about a little bit earlier, having a, a more structured approach to creating a regulatory framework that identifies risks and then, I, and then provides um, what products and services are allowed, I, I think is, um, it, it would be a helpful step. You know, for me, um, being located in Wyoming and really quite frankly feel that Wyoming's legislative framework is a really important part of, of our business just because they are so progressive in this area. Um, that, that's an advantage for us. So in some regards, I don't really want other states to catch up, <laughs> but I do right. think that there needs to be some consistency from a US federal perspective so that, um, that there aren't, there, there isn't so much uncertainty. And, and as Beth said earlier, this uncertainty really causes it, it risk and and um, fluctuation, and and you know that's actually causing more risk to the system than simply having a well thought out regulatory framework. Yeah, I I I go of two minds with this topic. Um, one is is that as a as America, right? We are based on interstate commerce. And we are based on the United States and being able to easily do business from state to state. So having the experience that you had, David, from where I sit, I think we need to avoid that. Now, how we avoid that can simply be many different models, right? One model could be you just the same way we have Delaware as a leader in corporate law and the other states sort of follow suit. Our economy, we figured it out. If you have a contract in Wyoming and you have a contract in New York and you have two counterparties that want a different jurisdiction, they're all pretty happy to compromise and agree to Delaware law. Wouldn't it be great if we got to the point, at least in the interim, why we waited for something more sustainable and systemic that we could at least have a more rational alphabet soup so that those that are getting into the space don't go to Bermuda or BVI or some of the other jurisdictions that Julie mentioned. Of course, I'm here in New York, so 
I would love for the fact that um, that there could be a really good balance between I think I think Julie called it a bridge right between traditional finance and innovation. Um, and I love the fact that I'm I've benefited from some really innovative thinking where the regulator was uncomfortable giving a trust charter said okay one of the best practices for governance is to have someone on your board, have a trustee that understands internal controls. So this way, the regulator took a balanced approach and said, it's not just for the regulators to regulate. If you have management and then you have oversight of management with someone that's not just on the business side, but has good business acumen, but also is an expert on the internal controls, I felt like that was a pretty innovative approach and I'm hopeful that we'll, you know, it's probably gonna be some time before we have complete continuity and a lot of certainty, but in the interim, if the states could work together and get some sort of agreement like we have for banking or for securities where you have the state regulators get together Right. And the state regulators figure out some way in which interstate commerce can be reasonable and the leaders can be leaders. And it's it's all good for the innovation. Um, I think that would be really great. Uh, yeah. That, and maybe that comes back to like level of maturity and, and, and a race to get there as well. You know, because you see it, you see it in the insurance industry, it's state by state, but at least there's some framework and then. Personally, I'm not an expert in regulation, but as a consumer, at least you start to see, okay, here's the exception in this state. Here's the exception in this state. So you have some sense of how to work your way around this. And you have like, you have like a, a state regulators, like in the insurance industry, right? All the industries we talk about, you have, a, you have all the state regulators that get together and collaborate. They still compete, but then you have trade associations um, that do the same, so. You know, and and there's, get, and internationally, it's going to be critical as well. Of course, yes. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and Beth, I know you mentioned uh, the uh, board that you sit on uh, for compliance, and there is a, a trade association. There's several new just forming within the digital asset space, and one that I'm involved in is the Global um, Digital Asset Cryptocurrency Association, so um, GDCA. And, and they are global and there's a lot of members in the US, but they've been really active in um, education and now getting involved with the infrastructure bill. Um, you know, good news, uh, crypto is no longer fringe, bad news, now, now it's gonna be taxed in a way that people don't really see how this is gonna work. So I, I think that there are industry groups that can help to sort of bridge that gap and, and be state to state and, and um, provide a voice for those in the industry and help to provide education. But I, I, I think it's going to be an iterative process and, and we've got a lot of work to do. You know, I know we have some others, but I'm, I'm now looking at the chat and I haven't really read them, but it might be worthwhile just to go down, start going down on some of these questions. Those we could answer, great. Those we can't, we might get back to them. Um, but I'm looking at, so I'll read them off. I'll read the first one. Um, we're currently as a banking industry providing input into Basel on their crypto consultation paper. Can you broach poly networks hack and the expectation for banks to own vulnerability assessments, ICT governance issues, fraud risk broadly? Um, and maybe I'll ask Julie first, simply because you own a bank. Sure, yeah. So I, I would start out and just say that that's one of the benefits of being a regulated institution is that banks are required to demonstrate a strong and effective enterprise risk management program. And included in that is a really strong cybersecurity program, which includes the appropriate testing uh, for cyber risk. So that, um, and, and not only is the, the bank and the board of directors who oversee the bank really helping to ensure that that is strong. We have a regulator that comes in and tests it. And we also will have an independent third party audit performing audits on an annual basis. So there's really a lot of, um, I would say assurances to clients to know that there is a robust risk management program, including 
uh, cybersecurity. And, and I would also say to the Basel, um, I, I know that they are asking for um, responses and so that I think that, you know, they may be a bit on the conservative side right now, but I think that they're asking good questions and they're starting to differentiate between different types of assets and do these assets hold more risk than other types? And so, you know, they're, they're looking at it, I think, um, beginning to look at it in the right way and getting more information. So as we've said all along, there's a really great opportunity to be involved in the process and to help educate. Yeah, and, and although I agree with everything that Julie said, I would also add when we look at the fintech industry, the fintech industry is not fully regulated and has all of the infrastructure that Julie described, but it's certainly more mature, to use your word, David, than the blockchain industry. And in that in private contracts, everyone that works with each other is requiring these types of controls, whether it's they require a SOC report, they require pen testing, they, you know, they, they require the transparency with the incidents. So I think there's room for both models where there isn't room is to go ahead and launch and take all this personal information and not have a good way to deal with what I'll call a predictable surprise. I do, I do love the fact that, uh, because personally I get, I get pretty grumpy when I get all these letters about all these breaches that happened years ago and I'm just finding out about it. Uh, I love the fact that this new industry is going to Twitter, right? And is saying, um, here's what happened. Um, I also think it's super interesting that they ask the hack, the hacker sometimes to give back the money and they do. Um, but the reason why we need the controls that Julie was talking about is because we're also talking about data. We're not talking about the actual digital assets. We're talking about the data, which uh, for many is, is just as valuable, if not more, uh, more so. Um, so the, the controls certainly are crucial. And regardless, if you get into the space, regardless of the model that you choose, um, you should be able, and you should be, at least where I say it, you should be very thoughtful if you're a management or a board member to make sure you, you understand and try and mitigate these risks because they will, they will be relevant. Absolutely. And, and interesting, I mean, that's for, uh, just coming from a technical perspective, while yet the regulations need to be there, people have to look at it meaning the banks know a little bit differently because there are some fundamental differences of how you actually go about mitigating some of these risks. Um, who owns them and stuff is one thing. And I'll just give you one example. Um, the, the traditional nature of a bank, it's very centralized. Everything you own, the assets are sitting in your systems, you own your systems, you put it in, something goes wrong. You could often go back, reverse it, update it, figure out how to do it. The, the blockchain in a way this works for you, it's a decentralized model. And the second you make that transaction, you no longer as a bank have control over that anymore. And it fundamentally changes where, how you have to manage that. And I mean, some of it comes down to managing these keys. Once somebody gets the keys, that's it. They, they really own everything else uh, that's going on downstream. So technically the, de the decentralized approach does actually change the nature of the risk, but even more of a reason, I think, to necessarily protect people and figure out what the risk is. And I feel like that's to your first question, David, that's why if, if the regulatory regime, they don't sort of stop and try and understand the products, if you just apply the wrong controls, you, you may miss some of the risks. And when I think of some of the letters I just mentioned, they're from a financial institution that I haven't been doing business with for seven years. So when I think about that, you say, wow, there, there is an opportunity with the decentralized um, model to eliminate certain risks, right? So this way, when you're talking about protection, it really is 
instead of bolting on like version 1.0, you sort of, you move forward. And, and I think, um, I guess your point really focused on this, which is it's, it's hard to do this without an expert because it, it is complex. Yeah, almost impossible to do without an expert. And you talk to very intelligent people and they all have different, a lot of limited understanding um, from that perspective. Okay. Um, I'm just gonna read the next thing. It says, regulation has always been aimed to the least sophisticated, witness the regs on mutual funds versus HMWA products. Uh, this is just a statement that need to be raised to protect both as appropriate. Um, but then they ask, will we go to principles or rules-based in regulation? I suspect this administration would tend to rules-based, ignoring the political element, but it's a good, I guess, good question. Any thoughts on principle versus rule-based in regulation? Um, I'll, uh, I'll kick us off, and I'm sure Julie has a lot to say as a former regulator, in, you know, where it that the OCC is just known for being one of the smartest regulators and the best to deal with. And having been on the other side of some of the examinations, I could reiterate that sentiment. Um, I, I think I would start by taking an issue with a little bit of the beginning of the question, because I do believe there are exemptions and exclusions and lots of regulation in US as well as European law. Um, that that really has a perspective if one proves to be a high net worth individual and and be sophisticated in the sense of having some sort of investment acumen so i do think there's precedent there uh, but then as as your your questioner may also be aware of that that's just a big debate because when you think of let's just talk about private funds and in america it, there are rules if you're sophisticated um, in the Euro, in Europe there isn't so some could say in Europe if you um, have you're less affluent you still have access to the best products whereas in the United States you need to be, have a certain affluence in order to have access to the private funds that hypothetically could deliver more of a return than an ETF or a mutual fund, and the ETFs and the mutual funds in 2021 are fairly expensive. Um, that said, when you think about rules versus principles, you've always, um, if you look back, you can hear some US regulators say, sure, look at the European regs that are principle-based, and you'll find an entire rule book that's behind it. Um, so I, I assume that what we'll see will be a hybrid which is um, which is similar to what we see for FTC for you know consumer protection and the tech space or the SEC or as, as I mentioned, the OCC. And just before I turn it over to Julie, one other point would be she had mentioned, I'll just call it a self-regulatory organization, an SRO. And when we look at securities and we look at what FINRA has done for what I talked about, penny stocks and micro cap securities, I think there is a role here for, there's a lot of trade associations and, and collaborative groups, which is amazing, but there's, there is room for one leader. So this way it can truly be the SRO and then, um, the entrants and the participants are able to strike the right balance of having too many rules or having a prudential principle-based regulation that doesn't give enough guidance that you still are in a world of uncertainty. Great, Julie. Yeah, great points, Beth. And and uh, I'd, I'd like to um, comment on the point of of your suggestion that, you know, it, it, it's really a combination. It's not rules versus principles, because I think in this quickly evolving and changing space to develop specific rules would not be able to anticipate what's going to happen for next year. And so that in itself, I think, stifles innovation. So I think the hybrid, I, I think by having only principles, though, it's difficult and you're constantly kind of going back and assessing, okay, how does this fit within that framework? So I think a combination with some clear guidance 
is really what's going to be best for the industry. And, and to your point of um, access to wealth creation, that, that's one of the things that is very exciting about the space to me is that I think it helps to democratize the access or at least expand um, so that more people have access to earlier investments in where, where some of those really big um, pops are. And so I think, you know, ensuring that there's enough information around that people can make informed decisions, but that they can have access to that, I think is, is really um, a, a very um, wonderful idea and, and is happening. Um, very interesting. I have a couple of other thoughts, but I want to jump on to the next question. Um, just for the sake of time on that as well. Um, this is Julie, you mentioned qualified custodian as a regulated entity on the state level in Wyoming. In your opinion, does that meet the definition of qualified custodian by the SEC? Well, luckily, you don't have to rely on my opinion because, uh, <laughs> yes, absolutely, it, it does. And it's actually part of the regulation. So they, the, the state of Wyoming and, and the blockchain coalition that worked on those regulations very astutely used the SEC guidance and incorporated that into their um, legislative structure. So that yes, an SPDI by definition does meet the SEC qualified custodian requirements. Oh, okay, that's, that's yeah. both good to know and comforting. Um, oh, here's an interesting question. So we are 11 years into cryptocurrency. Um, regulators are starting to put their hands around it, but they want to treat it like normal securities, fiat money. Um, my opinion, cryptocurrency is really about the rise of the people's money, not fiat money. Do you agree that cryptocurrency is a new era in money? And can any regulations apply to this peer-to-peer -peer ephemeral money? probably a lot of thoughts in various parts about breaking that down. But if you want, <laughs> feel free to attack that question. And I, I love that you're getting, you want. <laughs> I love that you're getting all these great questions. So I'm going to thank all the participants. It makes it much more interesting for us. Um, I do, I do agree with the question in that when you think of the internet, uh, many believe that it really was about communication. It wasn't supposed to be about e-commerce. So you now have the internet where you have this bolted on e-commerce and it's not secure. Our data isn't protected as we were just talking about with the previous question. So it's now ripe for e-commerce to be on a different platform like the blockchain. And David, I think you gave some examples of why um, if you don't think of this as a brand new um, foundation, you really, you really can make some mistakes. Um, and I am hopeful, as Julie said, that this does increase the access. So if you're, I think there were some really sort of sad examples about the tragedy in Afghanistan and the fact that the Afghanis weren't able to get the funding because some of the traditional funders sort of closed down shop. Whereas if the Afghanis had digital assets, they would still have access to a store of value. So, um, so yeah, I think I am agreeing with the question and that we are entering a whole new space. I still, as a, as a regulatory and legal Geek, I still really do think it, it, it does need some framework though to protect those individuals. I absolutely agree. I think we are on, on the uh, cusp of a of huge change in, in how we look at money, what is a, a store of value. Also, what, what is just a, whether it's P2P or, or some other type of payment rails, I think a much more efficient and frictionless payment system globally is, is really evolving quickly. And a lot of it has to do with this digital asset space. So I think that that will continue. And like Beth, I think that having guardrails and effective um, support around that to help ensure that 
there is, you know, a, I, I don't believe in completely trustless transactions at this point. And I, and I think that uh, there is room for the confirmation of um, some regulatory framework for entities to participate within to provide uh, some level of, of safety and assurance. Interesting. So, I mean, that is some of the fundamental things of why it's so different um, yeah. from that perspective. For people, there is a balance between completely wide open and, and having some control and framework over it. I think that'll be the interesting thing. Um, okay, there's one more here, and I don't know if this is just an opinion or, well, I'll read it. If it's an opinion, it's opinion. But it says, my opinion, so I'm assuming that, but then it asks a question, I think. There will be infinite forms of money, value, cryptocurrency. They will pop into and out of existence, maybe only existing for a moment. They will be wireless and falling into your phone as you walk around. They will be created by machines as needed and traded between machines without any human involvement. How can regulators be involved in this specific future money system without stifling its agility? Monies, in parentheses, monies that appear, disappear dynamically created and traded only by non-human actors, not investments. I don't know if you've had any thoughts. It sounds like using machine to machine to pay for services, for example, I'm assuming from one to the next. Uh, yeah, I feel like I feel like what we've talked about over the last hour takes that into account. Yeah. So when I think about, you know, if I just gave Julie $10, no one is regulating that. It's you know, it, it's just cash to cash. Like, yeah, if I went, like, like, I feel like that's a transaction and that actual transaction isn't being regulated. Other parts of the ecosystem are, but not the fact that I just give Julie $10. Um, I also think that like Venmo, when you think of Venmo and you think of PayPal versus you think of using Chase Zelle, like it's, we already have this very odd people are sharing money, whether it's, it's in a decentralized manner, an exchange, uh, a full bank <laughs> or a money transmitter. And we already have all different ways in which, you know, think about gold, right? Think about different commodities, think about collectibles. Like we already have that, but it, does feel as though it's getting into the next level of complexity and we have to match that complexity, but I feel like it's already there. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I, um, you know, money that appears and disappears <laughs> sounds a little uh, concerning, but, but I agree that with the existing payment systems that are there, uh, some are centralized, some are decentralized and, and the most, um, open is, is still cash, but, but certainly we can, through Venmo and others, um, move cash or, or the uh, balances very quickly and easily. So um, hopefully that answers your question. I, I would suspect yeah. there still is kind of a control point somewhere that money gets into the system, in, in, into the machines at some point. Um, well, I mean, I think the control is with with a PayPal or Venmo. I mean, they they know that I have money in my account that I am moving that to, right? So there is some support around. Um, we're going to move this money to from Julie to Beth, and Julie actually has the money to be able to move or has um, access to credit. Yeah, and I think the leap for me, though, Julie, is that Julie and Beth, in our example, are tr trusting a non-bank to handle the money, right? And this is sort of what I was talking about with the stable yeah. uh, coin wars, because we already, and, and we could probably spend another hour debating it, like, why is Venmo and Pay PayPal allowed to offer the same services as a fully regulated entity? And as users, are we getting the same protection? Um, or, you know, and it, I think it just depends to the person who had the opinion slash question, it's how you're using it. Because for the Venmo example, right, we're just talking about simple transactions, whereas if one wants more complex services, you're going to go to an entity that's regulated differently. Um, but those basic services really are, 
are you know a hodgepodge right now. Right, and I think stablecoin and CBDC, that whole concept is is moving quickly. And I think that and and not to put them in the same basket because they're certainly very different. But I think a lot of um, utility is available there as we move forward in this space. You know, it's interesting. I figured we're um, related to that. We're actually building um, initially choosing a ticketing and then an electronic um, cash payment system for the for the continent of Africa. And in in that case, one of the design principles it's got to handle people being able to make payments that quote non unbankable. People who don't have bank accounts be able to do that. The control is you literally put money in to say to buy enough tokens that it might be equivalent to to 10 Bitcoins, whatever it is. But once you have it, you then make all the transactions without any cost to anybody. You make them to merchant, you make them to each other. And there is no, so in that case, the control point is at the point of just when you purchase it and when you return it, you know, when you cash it in. But the entire interaction all along um, is literally for anybody. They don't necessarily need to have bank accounts, but there's enough control in place that it's safe. No one can steal each other's money off that off that card. Um, so it might, I think, well, we'll see too. It's going to depend on the nature of the transactions and stuff that we're actually doing along there. And it, that'll be fun to watch it as it evolves, because like we're at this inflection point where. I, I've had more than one conversation with senior citizens, right? Who say, okay, got my money in a bank. I'm paying a monthly fee. I have to pay fees if I do more than a certain amount of minimal transactions. I'm getting negative interest rate and they have all my money so that they can use it and lend it and do whatever they want. And you say, you know, if we're, it feels like an inflection point because it doesn't, it doesn't matter where you are in the age bracket, you say, hmm, there's got to be like your project sounds pretty awesome. But we also want to make sure as we've been talking about that, um, that you have someone like, like your organization to make sure it's secure, because it doesn't make any sense to pay all those fees and not get paid for the bank having all your money. But you also don't want to have your money taken from you yeah, because of a security breach. That's the primary reason they went to a security company to actually build it. Somebody else is providing the payment protocol. But they went to a security company to build it because the number one issue there is to make sure that this thing is actually safe and right. no one can do it. And the business behind it is and there are no trans transaction fees every time you pay for something. There's a lot of fees in the system. That you there are a lot of fees in the system. Yes. You know, that everybody's getting it. And um, it is exciting to see what's happening, especially in Africa. I think they are really uh, being so progressive and thoughtful in sort of leapfrogging over some of the um, systems that we've, we've used and looking forward to see how can we do this in a better way to help reach those who currently don't have uh, a banking account, but they are a part of the economy and need to be able to have access and how do we you know, reduce some of the fluctuation as well. Um, one of the um, organizations that I'm involved with is uh, working to create um, a commodities backed uh, stable coin and, and to help in um, payment with farmers and to their um, Entities and, and really some of that is just to take out the, the fluctuation and the risk in the day to day system. Yeah, and it's a it's a huge number of people. I don't know the oh. statistics, but I actually think it's probably the majority in the world. And, um, and it can be so helpful to the people. I mean, that's what's so exciting. I mean, it can be done well and safely. It can be so impactful. Yeah, and there's the use case, as you said, already with M-Pesa, which has been around for quite a while. Um, and and there's, there's just a lot of really great use cases where it's worked, right? So, so hopefully our U.S. regulators will look, look overseas uh, and see some really great use cases. Right. Yes. Well, we tend to be a little narrow, more narrow in our view a lot of times, but... Um, sometimes the rest of the world exists, sometimes it doesn't. Um, 
but hey, it's, we, I know we're running past, so um, I'm certain if we got together, we could keep going for three more hours. Um, it, I, I, just, I think, well, you know, we'll stop here, but I definitely want to thank both of you. I personally have learned a lot. I enjoy listening much more than I enjoy participating. Um, Chris, I get a lot more out of it that way personally. But I really want to thank you um, and thank everybody else who's, who's tuned in and listened and, and great questions. Um, there are some more comments as well, mostly more comments even on the chat for those who want to read through those as well. Um, so thank you, everybody, and um, enjoy the rest of the day. Yeah, thank you. Great, great questions from the audience. And thank you, David. Thanks, Beth. Take care. Enjoy. Thank you both. Take Stay care. safe. Bye. Bye.